Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An Internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on another edition of the Philippe Matthews Show. I have uh, with me uh, an incredible guest um, uh, with incredible uh, research. His name is Richard Rothstein. Uh, uh, after the uh, Michael, after Michael Brown was shot and killed by uh, police officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri, the Economic Policy Institute uh, on October 15, 2014, uh, came out with a 40-plus page report authored by Richard uh, entitled The Making of Ferguson, uh, Public Policies at the Root uh, of His Troubles. And uh, for those who uh, don't know, uh, Rothstein has written uh, extensively about uh, how poverty affects education and has spent years studying the evolution of residential segregation nationwide, and he is a research associate uh, of the Economic Policy Institute and senior fellow uh, of the Chief, Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a mouthful because you've done so much. Um, where does this work begin uh, for you? Uh, I know it's your job, but it's a job that I think is uh, backed by some level of passion. Well, for a long time I've been uh, studying education policy, as you mentioned, and um, I came to the conclusion, not original with me, that we could never close the achievement gap between black and white students unless uh, they were attending integrated schools because when you have children with uh, disadvantages uh, that make them less able to take advantage of what schools have to offer, if you have an individual child who's come from a home with um, parents, for example, who are not very literate and doesn't don't read to the child very much or who come from a home where they've had to move around a lot because they've fallen behind in rent mm-hmm. or because they're in poor health, a teacher can devote attention to that child, special attention to that child, and raise that child's level of achievement. But if you get classrooms where every child, or almost every child, has those kinds of disadvantages, uh, teachers can't devote special attention to those children. 
And so the whole level of instruction deteriorates. It becomes a remedial classroom, not uh, an on-grade-level classroom. Uh, children who come to school uh, in great stress because their parents have suffered economic problems, unemployment, or because uh, there's violence in their neighborhood. Again, a teacher can devote special attention to individual children like that, mm-hmm. but when you have a whole classroom of children like that, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. then you get more disciplinary problems. So you can't really solve the, the educational problems that we're trying to solve in uh, classrooms where children are so segregated. Um, and then it became obvious to me that uh, we can't desegregate schools unless we desegregate neighborhoods because schools are segregated because they're located in segregated neighborhoods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then I began to investigate how those neighborhoods became segregated, and that's the origin of this work. Wow, that is enormous. Um, I was blown away. It was one of those things, especially being um, uh, African-American uh, and, and growing up with uh, some level of awareness of, of, of what's going on, but not having... Uh, that level of confirmation, which is what you have done, I assume, uh, and, and I, I, I'm assuming that's why you're going to correct me that this is not a your research was not necessarily popular to certain people <laughs> in terms of what you uh, found and exposed because uh, it's kind of a black eye, if you will, on because this is at the fed, was at the federal level uh, for many years as you began to dissect and uncover Ferguson, but it was also something that was kind of, uh, it was nationwide. It was, it was institutionalized uh, throughout the uh, country uh, in terms of, and we're going to get into some of the, the, the particulars, uh, but in terms of segregated schools, is that correct? Well, yes. The, the neighborhoods have been segregated. Every metropolitan area in this country has segregation, residential segregation, and this residential segregation Most people think it happened by accident or because of white flight or because of private prejudice or because real estate agents were steering people to one place rather than another. But in fact, the the neighborhoods in every metropolitan area in this country were segregated by federal policy, deliberate, purposeful federal policy, and by state and local policy as well. We have a government-sponsored system of racial segregation. And it's not that my research has not made people happy. It's that the most people have forgotten this entire thing. Mm, uh, interesting it used point. to be well-known. Excuse me? That's an interesting point. So it's just that um, people kind of have forgotten and are blaming it on uh, just environment or society or poverty. And it's like, no, it, just, it goes a lot deeper than that. These were mm-hmm. actual laws that were in place. Well, that's right. We've adopted this myth that we have something called de facto segregation. You know, it just sort of happened uh, as I say, because of white flight or private prejudice. But in fact, we have segregation by law, by public policy. It, it was created that way. The policies persisted throughout the 20th century. Um, and simply uh, passing laws, as we now have done, saying you can't discriminate, doesn't undo any of the segregation that existed uh, in the past. And, and it mm-hmm. gets transferred from generation to generation. So I can describe some of these federal policies to you, if you like, but this I was not an accident. Yeah, I, 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 that's what was kind of shocking to me to see um, how far it went, because I think when you're living in it or, or, or a product of it, you see it, uh, uh, you can't see the forest for the trees because the tree is in front of you, and that might be the realtor, that might be uh, the house you're trying to buy or, or, or that particular situation, not knowing that it goes deeper than that all the way up to the uh, federal level 
um, talk to me about, and we're, you know, this is about Ferguson, but uh, this is really about kind of all of these laws that were, you know, uh, throughout the country in various different parts of the uh, country and, and, and particularly every state and uh, every city. Uh, how were, in uh, using your language, how were the ghettos uh, designed, uh, if you will? Sure. Um, well, the first policy, probably the main policy, uh, well, there are several important ones, but one of the main ones was the, the National Public Housing Program, which began in the 1930s. Most people think of public housing as something for poor black families. In fact, public housing began in the 1930s as a New Deal program primarily for whites because there was a national housing shortage. Mm. In the Depression, uh, builders weren't building houses and the population was expanding and people had no place to live. So the federal government began, began a public housing program and it built it on a segregated basis, explicitly segregated. It didn't happen by accident. The federal government had a policy that some projects, projects were for blacks and others were for whites. Uh, the black projects were placed uh, in inner city areas. The white projects were more likely to be placed in um, white areas. And frequently, the federal government uh, demolished uh, neighborhoods that were integrated in order to create segregated uh, ghetto areas. So, for example, you, you want to talk about St. Louis. St. Louis is an example of that. There was a in the 1930s, there was a, um, a, a neighborhood in downtown St. Louis uh, called the DeSoto Car neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That neighborhood was integrated. It was about half black, half white, because workers, uh, whether black or white, had to be able to live close enough to the factories where they worked to walk to work uh, every day. Mm-hmm. So it was an integrated neighborhood. Uh, the federal government and the city of St. Louis uh, demolished that neighborhood and eventually uh, built uh, a public housing project on that neighborhood, on that area for blacks only, and built another public housing project uh, farther south, away from that area, for whites only. And this was true throughout the country. Um, It wasn't always the case that that integrated neighborhoods were demolished. Sometimes you had neighborhoods that were already uh, had uh, larger numbers of African Americans in it, but that's where the uh, public housing was placed uh, for blacks and for whites. It was placed in white neighborhoods. That was the first policy. Mm. Uh, and this was 1930. Well, it began in the 1930s. It began in the deal uh, with the Public Works Administration, and it continued uh, uh, very heavily uh, during World War II, mm-hmm. when the federal government vastly expanded its uh, public housing efforts to build housing for workers who. Um, flocked to centers of war production. Uh, In California, for example, the city of Richmond, uh, take that example, was the largest center of shipbuilding uh, during World War II. Mm -hmm. It had virtually no African Americans living in the city before the war. Uh, By the end of the war, it had uh, nearly 15,000 who had come Mm -hmm. to uh, the city, and uh, there was no housing available. Uh, white workers flocked to the city as well to work in these shipyards, predominantly white workers. The federal government built segregated public housing in Richmond. Um, so you, it created segregation where no segregation had existed before because there was uh, there were very few African Americans living in the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing happened in San Francisco and in the, throughout the area and in every metropolitan area in the country. So the war housing was a big part of this. Fascinating. Um, there's a story 
that you share uh, in the report about uh, 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 Larman Williams uh, uh, in, in 1968 that I'd like for you to, to bring all of this kind of home and connect the dots with. Can you share that story? Because he was one of the first African Americans uh, in, uh, uh, was it Ferguson, uh, to purchase a home? No, no, it wasn't Ferguson. It was a suburb of St. Louis. But, uh, okay. It was a suburb of St. Louis. But uh, like many African Americans who wanted to move to uh, uh, white suburbs um, in the uh, uh, that period, uh, he was not able to do so. And frequently, uh, let me step back for a minute. You know, the, the after the, the these ghettos had been created um, by the public housing um, program, uh, the federal government decided that it was going to suburbanize the white population, explicitly suburbanize the white population. And as the housing shortage eased, uh, whites were able to move to these whites-only suburbs that the federal government created and um, uh, leave public housing, leave urban areas, and blacks were prohibited by the federal government. Mm. So, for example, uh, in, in St. Louis, there were a number of uh, suburbs that were created by builders who went to the Federal Housing Administration. They got uh, banks to issue loans that were guaranteed by the federal government on condition. This was a federal government condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. Uh, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, Daly City uh, is perhaps the best-known example. Uh, mm -hmm. You may remember um, Pete Seeger used to sing a song about houses on the hillside made of ticky-tacky. Uh, mm -hmm, Westlake mm -hmm. in Daly City. That was a development uh, built by a builder named Henry Dolger, who got a uh, guaranteed uh, building loans from the f banks uh, with federal guarantees on condition that he not sell homes to African Americans. So all of these suburbs were created in the 1940s and 50s uh, when um, Whites were, be able, were able to move to suburbs that were being created once the, the housing shortage eased, and blacks were prohibited from doing so. So you had um, what uh, some people have referred to as a white noose created mm -hmm. around uh, central cities um, uh, the, that were uh, inhabited increasingly only by blacks. Now, the, the, the fellow that you talked about, um, uh, African American uh, school teacher, uh, who wanted to move to a um, a decent suburb um, uh, was unable to find housing um, in uh, many places, uh, any places uh, really in the suburban St. Louis. Uh, he was about to move back to uh, uh, his home in, I, I, I think it was Kansas, um, as I recall, and uh, he finally uh, was able to uh, uh, get a home in the um, in a white community, uh, because somebody fronted for him, uh, mm -hmm. a white uh, a white uh, homeowner was uh, um, a white purchaser uh, bought the house for him, and uh, uh, without letting the seller know that, uh, that he was an African American, and that's typically the way um, very few African Americans who were able to move to the suburbs did so. Now, what's interesting is is when you keep saying this is at the federal level, I, I think I want to bring this home, and that is. Uh, what were the consequences if you sold uh, to an African-American family? Uh, well, yeah, what, what, hap what happened to you if you, because you were breaking federal law? Well, it wasn't, you weren't breaking federal law, but you were breaking the contract under which you bought the home that the uh, 
this wasn't the, this was a regulation, uh, a procedure of the Federal Housing Administration. So the Federal Housing Administration frequently required, uh, strongly recommended that any builder who uh, got a Federal Housing Administration loan to construct the suburb uh, put in the deed of the home a provision prohibiting the um, uh, owner from reselling the home or renting the home to an African-American. If the um, uh, seller did do that, did um, sell a home to an African-American, uh, neighbors could sue the um, uh, the seller and force the uh, sale to be revoked and the uh, African-American to be evicted. And the courts throughout the country enforced these provisions. They were called restrictive wow. covenants. And um, uh, the courts enforced them. In 1948, the Supreme Court said that those covenants were unenforceable. But it didn't say they were illegal. They just said you couldn't go to court to enforce mm -hmm. them. So for the next uh, eight years or so, instead of um, uh, going to court to evict uh, African Americans, um, these covenants uh, instead uh, permitted uh, homeowners to sue the seller for damages. So they couldn't wow. evict the African American, but the damages were so prohibitive that uh, no, nobody dared sell to an African American. That was finally also declared unconstitutional. But still, even after those provisions were declared unconstitutional, the uh, Federal Housing Administration continued to ensure uh, uh, developments that were openly excluding African Americans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, it, 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 which I found fascinating, you were saying in the mid '60s, Ferguson was what's known as a sundown town, which I had never even heard of, uh, where African Americans were banned after dark. Yes, yes, that's true. There was a um, there's a, an adjoining town near Ferguson called Kinlock, which was the uh, area in which um, African Americans lived. Many of them were. Uh, Servants, domestic servants in the town of Ferguson, uh, all but one of the streets between uh, uh, Ferguson and Kinlock were blocked off to prevent uh, residents from uh, in Kinlock from coming into Ferguson, except in this one route which they could use uh, to come to their um, jobs as domestic servants, and they were um, not permitted to to come into the town after sundown. Unbelievable. Now, also, uh, the report shows that uh, when they created uh, these segregated <laughs> neighborhoods for African Americans, that they uh, uh, allowed, uh, you know, prostitution, uh, uh, taverns, uh, 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 you know, all kinds of uh, seedy, uh, 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 industrialized uh, uh, businesses that were not allowed. Uh, in the white communities, is that right? Well, well what you're referring to is, is uh, zoning. Uh, beginning in the 1920s, uh, the Supreme Court permitted uh, cities to create uh, uh, zoning ordinances, uh, which uh, prohibited uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, construction in some areas and, and prohibited other kinds in other areas. Typically, and this still exists today, uh, you had the, the first residential zones, which were single-family homes, second residential zones, which had um, multiple-family homes, apartments, uh, two-family homes, and then you had commercial zones, and you had industrial zones. Mm -hmm. If uh, a neighborhood, um, typically, 
uh, consisted of single-family homes of white homeowners with uh, restrictive covenants, for example, that uh, would prohibit the resale to African Americans. Uh, zoning commissions in many cities, and, and specifically you're referring to St. Louis, zoning commissions would designate those neighborhoods as a residential, first residential zones in which nothing but single-family homes could be built. If the neighborhood had African Americans in it, uh, the uh, zoning commissions would frequently, and in St. Louis did, uh, classify those neighborhoods as uh, neighborhoods where uh, industry could locate, where uh, uh, commercial businesses could locate, uh, taverns could locate, uh, and in fact in St. Louis they even uh, encouraged uh, houses of prostitution to locate in neighborhoods where African Americans lived to keep them out of other places. Unbelievable, um, wow. So uh, th- this was the zoning, and it still exists uh, exists today. Um, you say in the report, the federal highway system routes highways through urban areas, often to eliminate black neighborhoods uh, that were uh, close to downtowns. I, uh, can you go deeper in that? That's amazing. Well, this is another federal policy. Um, the federal highway, uh, interstate highway system that was uh, began in the 1940s and 50s and then was um, formalized in the uh, National Housing Act, I'm sorry, Highway Act of uh, 1956, had two purposes. One was to bring um, uh, uh, suburban, white suburban uh, uh, homeowners into downtown areas for their jobs, but the second purpose was to remove uh, African-American neighborhoods um, from areas close to downtown and push the ghetto farther away so that it did not come close to uh, downtown business areas. And this was the open purpose in in many cities. Uh, in other places, the uh, highways were used to create barriers between black and white neighborhoods to make it more difficult for uh, uh, black families to um, uh, relocate uh, across the highway to uh, white areas or even for people to uh, uh, walk or, or drive there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but the... I'm from Chicago. The, okay, well, the Dan Ryan Expressway. Dan Ryan Expressway. Sorry, that was designed to separate the, um, the black and white neighborhoods. And it created a barrier that the... Uh, tried to contain black neighborhoods to the east uh, to protect the uh, white neighborhoods from the west for many African Americans. So this was a systematic throughout the country as a, one, of, one of the purposes of the uh, interstate highway system. Uh, absolutely. And I, let me just emphasize, I want to emphasize to you, this was open. This was not a hidden purpose. This was not sort of an accident, uh, an unintended consequence of... Um, Highway building. This was an explicit, open purpose of the uh, of the highway system, and and it was uh, spoken about openly by uh, by highway planners. Uh, absolutely fascinating. So, you know, another factor uh, in this uh, that I'm reading in the uh, in the report uh, was basically just uh, uh, inadequate municipal. Uh, services uh, in black neighborhoods, uh, you know, just basic basic things, you know, sewer, sewage, uh, street lights, uh, garbage uh, uh, pickup. Uh, speak to us about those things uh, that also uh, occurred as a result of this segregation. Well, once you had a situation where African Americans had very little housing available to them outside 
these ghetto areas where they were concentrated both by public uh, housing and because uh, the population was growing and um, other neighborhoods were uh, close to them by restrictive covenants or even by, as I said, the Federal uh, Housing Administration policy, African-American neighborhoods became overcrowded. Uh, mm-hmm. They had to pay, African-Americans had to pay much more uh, to rent an apartment uh, than whites had to pay for similar apartments elsewhere simply because of the laws of supply and demand. Um, there were so few uh, uh, apartments available um, to African-Americans relative to their demand compared to uh, whites who, who rented apartments in other areas. So the neighborhoods became um, overcrowded because in order to uh, make these rent payments, uh, families had to subdivide uh, their homes. Uh, they had to um, uh, double up with relatives. And so you had a very, very overcrowded neighborhoods developing uh, that otherwise would not have developed had the supply of housing available to African Americans been comparable to what was available to whites. Mm-hmm. Well, once you had an overcrowded neighborhood like that, um, you demand much, much more uh, city services in order to simply maintain uh, its quality. You need garbage collected much more frequently if uh, the density of the neighborhood is greater. And uh, usually in cities, um, uh, for example, uh, they did not collect the garbage more frequently. Well, this kind of thing started to build up. Uh, The street lights weren't maintained as adequately in uh, uh, black neighborhoods as in white ones. And black neighborhoods became slums. Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The white families uh, living in suburbs looked at these neighborhoods and concluded that slums were a characteristic of African Americans, not a result of the public policy that overcrowded them and then denied denied, uh, services to them. Mm -hmm. So when African Americans tried to move to uh, uh, suburbs, uh, in addition to being prohibited by uh, the federal policies I mentioned, white families became afraid that they would bring the slum conditions with them. And mm-hmm. so you got the white flight, uh, a fear develop, which was uh, uh, rational in the sense that the, uh, the African Americans were coming from slum neighborhoods, but the white families didn't realize that this was a, a function primarily of uh, public policy, not of the characteristics of the families themselves. Uh, and so in that, there uh, is a, a lack of uh, quality school uh, schools uh, because they're now uh, segregated. Uh, and so you, it's kind of like a vicious uh, cycle and circle, a hamster on the wheel. Um, you, your property, you have no property value, so you can't build the wealth. You, you, you show uh, some great margins in there on uh, the wealth disparity, the, the disparity between uh, whites uh, and blacks, uh, that they could not build uh, wealth and equity in their home uh, as uh, white neighborhoods and white families were able to do. Well, that's correct. I, I mentioned before, um, uh, you know, subdivisions like Levittown in New York or, or Westlake in Daly City, uh, uh, south of San Francisco, or the um, suburbs like that uh, in the St. Louis area. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, white families um, were uh, able to buy homes and subdivisions like that for around seven or eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's about one hundred twenty-five thousand uh, dollars. More or less in, in today's today's money, mm-hmm. uh, those homes today sell for five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand uh, dollars. The white families who were uh, who bought into places like Levittown and Westlake and Daly City and 
the, the suburbs of Ferguson, uh, gained that equity at a time when black families were um, unable, uh, prohibited from doing the same, even though they had the same economic circumstances, the same kinds of jobs. They were These were working class families, uh, same kinds of jobs, uh, same kinds of skills, but were prohibited from doing so. Well, the this gain that came through the next two or three generations of uh, perhaps a half a million dollars in, in equity, um, white families who moved into these suburbs were able to use that gain in equity to uh, send their children to college. They used it for their retirements so that the children, their children didn't have to support them in retirement. Black families who were uh, forced to remain in ghettos uh, gained none of that equity. Mm-hmm. Well, today, um, nationwide, uh, average African-American incomes are about 60%. That's 60% of white family incomes. But black average family wealth is about 5% of white family wealth. And that difference uh, between the 60% ratio for for income and the 5% ratio for wealth is almost entirely attributable to uh, federal housing policy, racially explicit housing policy. Um, So where does that leave us uh, in... uh, what what are some of your are you at the end of the report you give some solutions um whether or not they're realistic and how we'll be able to be activated or not is another story but what can we undo the damage that has been done uh, well we can but the first thing that needs to be done uh, is that we have to reacquaint Americans with this history because as long as people sincerely believe that we have de facto segregation segregation that just happened by accident because black people don't have enough income to move to the suburbs or because of private prejudice. I Uh, think it's also the ripple effect too, uh, Richard, is that, you know, one law has a ripple effect on the entire society uh, and a a population of people in general that I don't see, as you say, it goes so deep, people really just don't know. Even even some black people, we don't know, you know, we haven't got a clue. Yeah, right. And so I think that the the first step, if if I can say so, is we have to re-educate the American people about how this happened. Because if the American people come to understand that these ghettos, that the segregation that we have today was created by government policy, that, of course, is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. It was created in violation of the Constitution, in violation of the Fifth and the Fourteenth and the Thirteenth Amendments to the Constitution. Uh, de facto segregation uh, is just an accident. But the jury segregation, the segregation that we have, was created in violation of the Constitution. And if people become acquainted with this history, then they may be open to considering what remedies may be required. Because if you have a constitutional violation, you're required to remedy it. But until we have that understanding... Um, and uh, as I say, this history has all been forgotten. It was once much better known than it is today. This history has all been forgotten. Until uh, we reacquaint ourselves with that history, I don't think there's going to be much openness to uh, considering how it can be remedied. Now, it's interesting uh, you said this, that, that there was a point when this history was known, but nothing was done. It continued and obviously was allowed to to, to be part of the practice and a standard of America. This uh, what was what's different between then uh, and the consciousness, I guess, of America now? 
looking well, at what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore well, and so on, and many different you know cities ar- ar- around the uh, country. Well, I, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. So it may be that even if people become reacquainted with the history, that nothing again will be done. Mm-hmm. But uh, I am saying that uh, the first step has to be to, uh, as you're doing, broadcast this history, make people uh, aware of it, so that we can begin to consider what our constitutional obligation is to undo it. Um, there's no guarantee that if people understand it that we will fulfill our obligations. But uh, if we don't understand it, it's guaranteed that we won't fulfill those obligations. A young family uh, starting out, uh, hearing this, what are, what, are, what are some of the first steps they need to take? And, and actually, uh, not just a young family starting out, but even perhaps a, a seasoned family hearing this for the first time. What, what would some of the first steps, logically, that they would take? Well, I don't think this can be, uh, I'm not sure I understand your question, but I'm not sure, I don't think this can be solved at an individual level. Uh, we need uh, public programs to remedy the constitutional violations. Uh, for example, I gave you the examples uh, a few minutes ago about Levittown and Westlake and other suburbs like that. Um, a remedy is going to require subsidies to permit African Americans, because the, you know it's, it's no good. We passed a law in 1968 saying. Um, it's it's no longer uh, permit, permissible to to discriminate in housing. Um, it wasn't permissible before, but we made it explicit in the 1968 Fair Housing Law. So we said, okay, African Americans, you now have the right to uh, buy into Levittown or to buy into Westlake or to buy into uh, the suburbs of St. Louis or any of the other cities in the country. But it's a meaningless right for the most part because those homes are now unaffordable. Mm-hmm. to uh, working and middle-class African-Americans, whereas they were affordable uh, when the discrimination, the, the public policy discrimination was going on. That can't be remedied without uh, some form of subsidy to African-Americans that permits them to buy into middle-class suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about the welfare recipients. I'm talking about middle-class and working-class African-Americans, mm-hmm. of whom there are millions but who can't afford to buy into the middle-class communities that they would have been living in had uh, the federal policy not prohibited them from doing so. But those subsidies are not going to be forthcoming unless we understand it's a constitutional obligation to remedy past um, uh, public policy. And uh, we're not going to understand that, as I say, unless we become familiar with the kinds of uh, historic public policies that uh, you and I have been discussing. Mm-hmm. So looking at Ferguson, looking at Baltimore, um, those communities uh, that we see on television, those communities that I grew up in in Chicago, south side of Chicago, um, are a direct result uh, of segregation uh, and these policies uh, and the lack of uh, uh, quality education, the lack of transportation to those uh, uh, better schools and and what have you, creates an entire generation uh, and sub-generation uh, that never gets a chance um, to, if you will, get a piece of the American dream. Well, that's correct. I think you said it before. It becomes a circle, a circular process uh, that uh, living in segregated uh, neighborhoods uh, does not give children the opportunity to succeed in 
uh, in school, and if they don't have a, uh, an opportunity to succeed in school, they're more likely to uh, live in segregated neighborhoods as adults. You were on a show, I think, and you were talking about something, uh, uh, I don't know if it was in the report or not, about George Romney. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mitt Romney's father, who uh, uh, was working on the Nixon uh, administration, I believe, at the time. Uh, can, okay, can you tell us that history, that story, and how that connects uh, to segregation? Because you said it wasn't uh, uh, necessarily um, legal, uh, but it was unconstitutional. Right, right. Uh, the, well, I think what you're referring to is I, I said earlier that uh, this history was once much better known than it is today. It wasn't mm-hmm. you know, commonplace knowledge, but it was much, much better known. In, in 1968, uh, Richard Nixon was uh, elected president of the United States, and he appointed as his uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development George Romney, who had been the governor of Michigan. And he was a moderate Republican. He wasn't a, a radical. He wasn't a liberal. He wasn't a... Uh, Northern Democrats. He was a moderate Republican. And even he recognized uh, the history that I've been describing. He used the term that I used before. He said the federal government has created a white noose around uh, black neighborhoods in urban cities, in, in urban areas. And it's the responsibility of the federal government to untie that noose. Mm-hmm. And so as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Romney uh, began a program he called Open Communities. And under this program, he required uh, suburbs, uh, white suburbs, to do the following things. They had to repeal any ordinances they had that prohibited the construction of apartments, uh, of multifamily dwellings, Mm -hmm. two-family dwellings or garden apartments. or Many of these suburbs uh, that were all white had uh, ordinances, uh, zoning ordinances that permitted only single-family homes. So he said that they have to um, uh, repeal those ordinances. Secondly, he had said they had to accept their fair share of, uh, of public housing. Um, uh, again, I'm not, not talking about high rises, but you know, scattered public housing units. Mm-hmm. And they had to also permit uh, developers to build uh, subsidized moderate income apartments that would serve to integrate these communities. And he said if they didn't do that, he was going to withhold all federal funds from these suburbs for things like sewers and water projects and green space, all the things that communities get money from the federal government for doing. And he actually withheld um, federal funds from three suburbs. One of them was Baltimore County uh, for being segregated and for refusing to take action to desegregate. Well, uh, there was an uproar. President Nixon reined him in, uh, said that he didn't believe in forced integration, um, and uh, Romney was eventually eased out of uh, his position as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and the Open Communities uh, Program was uh, canceled. And we've had nothing that aggressive since. But again, it was possible even to talk about it at that time because people were familiar with how the federal government had created this white news and we're not likely to be able to talk about these things again until people again become familiar with it. So are you saying also it's about it's just not the conversation that people like you and I are having and the research that you've done, but it's also the politicians. Uh, so right. it's about lobbying and, and, and trying to get trying to make change here. 
Well, yes, it's, it's the politicians, but the politicians are not going to respond unless the people start talking about it. And, mm. and that's why I think the kind of uh, you know education that you're doing on this program uh, is important, and it's important that it uh, go much beyond that to familiarize uh, the American people with uh, how we got where we are today, something that's uh, now been forgotten. Did I leave anything out uh, in terms of questions that you wanted to bring out on this, uh, on our conversation, uh, or, or, or parting words or thoughts uh, with this report? I assume you're doing other work as well. Well, this is, yeah, I'm working on this topic. Uh, I, I, the report that you're referring to was about Ferguson because uh, St. Louis was in the news, and I, I uh, applied these uh uh, themes uh, to the city of St. Louis and showed how they apply, but uh, they took place in every city in the country. Uh, one of the things I did uh, recently, uh, or within the last couple of years, was I looked at um, uh, textbooks that are being used in, uh, to teach American history mm-hmm. in high schools around the country. And what I found is, was that textbooks uh, that are being used in high schools around the country misstate this history. They they uh, they don't tell the truth about it. They misstate it. Um, the most popular um, American history textbook in the country uh, has one paragraph uh, in in the entire 1,200-page textbook devoted to uh, discrimination in the North, and it has one sentence devoted to residential segregation. And the sentence reads as follows: It says, "In the North, African Americans found themselves in segregated neighborhoods." Wow. So, so, so that's it. That's it. They found themselves. They woke up one day and said, "Look, here we are in a segregated neighborhood," with absolutely no mention of all of the federal programs that had required them to to live there. So one of the things that uh, you know your listeners can do is uh, go to their local high schools and school districts and, and see whether they're misteaching this history. Of course, mm-hmm. they have to become familiar with the history first to. to be able to ensure that it's being taught properly, but that's something that anybody can do, because if we don't start teaching this history properly, the next generation is not going to be any better position, be in any better position to correct it than the present generation is. Correct, correct. Yeah, I think it was just uh, it went viral. Uh, the lady from Texas I uh, saw yes. uh, yeah, a textbook uh, that uh, referred uh, to slavery as immigration. Uh, yeah, workers. They called slaves workers. workers. Yeah, yeah, workers. Yeah. Uh, which would, which would suggest a wage, <laughs> and uh, it, it, just unbelievable in terms of, I guess you would call it the whitewashing uh, and sanitation uh, yeah. uh, uh, of this issue. Um, the, 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 the passage I mentioned a minute ago um, it is not just in the Texas textbook; it's in every textbook in the country. Mm. Mm. And, uh, wow. It's um, it needs to be corrected. You have written several books. I did not mention all of those books as well for our listeners. Uh, you are a well authored. What was your what what was your latest book? Well, I uh, my latest book was written um, almost seven years ago, so I don't turn it out very often. But it was called Grading Education. Uh, G R A D I N G, um, and the previous one was called Class and Schools. Uh, both of them are about education policy and, and talk about the uh, racial gaps in, in academic achievement. 
Uh, and where can people get in contact with you and find your books? And, and uh, obviously, they'll be able to go to our site once we have this up uh, to be able to do that, uh, and we'll promote it uh, ri- rigorously. But where yeah, can, what's your yeah, they can go to the Economic Policy Institute website, which is www.epi.org, and uh, there's a list of uh, so-called experts, <laughs> a menu of experts on that site, and if they scroll down to my name, they can uh, find uh, copies of all of the articles I've written on this topic and also my address to get hold of me, and um, I welcome correspondence from any of your listeners. Fantastic. Richard, thank you for taking the time out uh, and, and having this conversation with me. I actually would love to have you back on the show, and perhaps even on our live video show, which airs around the world. I think this would be a fantastic topic to uh, uh, expose at that level. Thank you very much. I'd be glad to. Fantastic, Richard. Thank you for being with me. We'll talk soon. Okay. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.